I have used a lot of commerce platforms in the past. By far, the most robust is Shopify. No matter how complex your business needs and no matter how large your business grows, Shopify can handle it. And they do handle it for brands like Rothy's, Ruggable, Allbirds, Knox, Magnolia, Brooklinen, Glossier, and Cotton, to name a few. You may already use another e-commerce platform and you may be super unhappy with it, but you've already put a lot of work into it and migrating to Shopify could seem impossible. But I'm here to tell you that it is quite easy. When I migrated to Shopify back in 2022, their apps and tools meant I just had to make a few clicks and everything was ported over as if by magic. Shopify also lets you design your storefront however you like, which from personal experience I know isn't the case for many other commerce platforms out there. All these features and all this control can result in more sales more often. So stop leaving sales on the table, switch your business to Shopify today, and discover why millions trust Shopify as their all-in-one commerce platform to build, grow, and run their businesses. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial at shopify.com forward slash practical, all lowercase. That's one month for just $1 at shopify.com forward slash practical, shopify.com forward slash practical. Good morning, Prakaptan. I hope you are doing well. Today we're working through Meditation 43 from Book 2. But before we start, a quick plea for help. I'm looking to make these episodes longer, and I'm sure you'd like to hear them be longer, but that is genuinely difficult to do when I already write about 20,000 words a week in scripts and articles. You can help me accomplish this easily, though, by submitting questions to the podcast via stoicismpod.com forward slash ask. My hope is that this adds another layer of benefit to the podcast and, of course, will lengthen each episode by appending a Q&A section to each meditation. So, please, if you're inclined to do so, don't be shy. Ask away. As to today's meditation, which, again, is number 43 from Book 2, it reads as follows. Time is like a river made up of the events which happen, and a violent stream, for as soon as a thing has been seen, it is carried away, and another comes in its place, and this will be carried away as well. There's something romantic about how Marcus has worded this one. I think it's beautiful to imagine our lives as a series of moments rushing past. Here it comes, here it is, there it goes. But hey now, here's yet another. It makes me feel like I'm part of something really ephemeral. I'm an experiencing agent within the flow of time. Imagine how many things are not. So it feels lucky and beautiful. I've made a similar analogy in the past in an episode called Amor Paddle, comparing fate to a river and our agency to a canoe and a paddle. And of course, you already know the one about the dog and the cart. In a different previous episode last Monday, I think, we talked about how perhaps the most central lesson of Stoicism is that nothing but virtue truly matters. I gave the example of how dying doesn't hurt us because the only true hurt is hurt of one's virtue or hurt of one's character, the degradation of one's character, but how failing to do the right thing out of fear, while it may not physically impact us, actually does hurt us because we've acted in bad character. And at the end of that episode, I suggested that understanding this, that virtue is the only good, might be the most central teaching in Stoicism. If there were a second, though, it would probably be this, that your life is passing, like a silent but raging torrent, and you have only the moment of right now 
to act and influence your fate. Remember, fate happens to us and through us. These two ideas go rather well together, I think. If you can remember the only real harm is the harming of your virtue, the harming of your character, then you can be like a superhuman, afraid of nothing and always willing to do the appropriate thing. And if you couple that with the understanding that moments are all we have, you may well be less willing to allow any moment to pass unmarked, unutilized, or unseized. Carpe momentum? Imagine the powerhouse of positive impact you might become if you knew what really mattered and wasted not a single moment of action. That must be what it feels like to be a sage. And while we'll very likely never become sages, I think it's useful to keep the ideal of sagehood ever in our mind's eye, motivating us to never stop trying to be the best and most appropriate versions of ourselves. Today we've got a question from a listener. His name is Tim, and here is his question. I've got a couple of job interviews today, and I'm trying to stay positive while at the same time remembering the first line of the Enkahadrian that not everything is in my control. But how do you think the Stoics and, and practicing Stoics today would handle stuff like trying to make good impressions, answering questions appropriately, and obtaining new employment? I've gone through a rash of interviews in the last year, and I've yet to get another position. So I'm hoping that this helps um, kind of generate some conversation, helps you with the episodes. Uh, Let me know what you think. Thanks, man. Well, Tim, I realize this advice comes about a week late, but I hope you got the job. Regardless of whether or not you did, though, I hope what follows is helpful to you and to others. I think the Greeks lived in a world of roles. And I might be wrong about this, but it seems like your job was less like something you went out and got and more like something you inherited. If you didn't like your job, perhaps you could strike out on your own, start up your own merchant business, get shipwrecked, lose everything, and then form a philosophy ripe for podcast discussions 2,300 years later. But in most cases, my assumption is you did what your dad did. And if you didn't, there's a good chance you'd wind up homeless. All that to say, I can all but guarantee the Stoics probably didn't have a position on job hunting. But I did giggle when thinking of a Stoic version of Monster.com or Indeed. Anyway, I think I might be able to tease out something that is Stoicism-inspired, and hopefully Stoicism-aligned, in order to answer your question. First, though, I want to give you my personal brand of advice on this. I think I will start with the point of a resume which is to convey your competency and skill. No hiring manager actually cares about your start dates or end dates, but a hiring manager with 100 resumes to screen in order to fill a single position is going to look at, for example, your work gaps as low-hanging fruit to discard your resume because they've got to filter down to a handful of candidates somehow, and job gaps can make that a little easier. So advice number one Don't use specific dates in your work history. Use years instead. If you worked from November 2020 to March 2021, don't put the months. Just put 2020 to 2021. This will hide some employment gaps on paper. Now, importantly here, I'm not suggesting you lie. I'm suggesting you be a little vague on paper so that you have a better chance of getting the interview. Then, if asked in the interview, you can add color to the start and end dates of previous jobs because you're already in the interview at that point, and the interviewing manager is already invested in you. 
But as someone who has been a hiring manager before, I can tell you that hiring managers do not actually care about that. What they do care about is your vibe. That is what it almost always comes down to. Because most jobs are learnable, trainable. They're looking for a culture fit more than they're looking for a talent fit. That doesn't mean you can walk into any job with no skills or no experience whatsoever, but it's not the most important thing in most cases. I have owned a few businesses and I have hired a lot of people in my life. If it's an entry-level job, a job that can be trained for, I can tell you that I never cared about what someone's experience was. I cared about what their vibe was during the interview. And any manager you sit down with for an interview has a whole team of other human beings that you're going to have to get along with. And they've been working with them for a while, so they know them. And if something in the interview suggests that you're going to be a massive upset to the team dynamic that currently exists, I don't care if you have a PhD in tech support or marketing or burger flipping, you present a risk to the harmony of the workplace. Your number one priority with a resume is to get the interview. If you omit a bit of specificity, that is okay. So long as, and I think this is important, so long as you truly believe you can do that job, I'm not encouraging you to fib your way into a job interview that you can't actually do the job for. I'm suggesting you omit details that make it easy for a hiring manager to filter out your resume because they need to filter out a bunch of resumes. Once you're in the interview, it's time to be you. Because if you're not you, and the manager hires you based on some projection of you that you've invented, there's a good chance that you are not going to be happy and that manager isn't going to be happy because you won't actually be a good fit. You'll just have tricked someone. And I know it's hard to do this because when you need a job, you care a lot less about finding a job that's a good fit and you just need a money solution. But in the long run, it is better to be hired on honest and accurate pretenses than it is to get a job you'll quit or be fired from in the first three months. So be yourself, pay attention, be thoughtful in your responses, and also be vibe-checking the hiring manager as well. Do you want to work with this person? Does this job actually seem good to you? The fit for a job has to be a two-way street or it's not going to work out in the long run. Also, it's a good idea to check the company's website, read their mission statement, a couple of blog posts, try to understand their ethos ahead of the interview. Understand the vocabulary they use, try to get in their head a little bit, understand who you're talking to and what it is that matters to them. As far as the stoic take, because nothing I just said had anything to do with stoicism, I think that the stoic take's probably easier. The Stoics of antiquity, I'm assuming because I don't have a time machine, would want us to first ask whether the job we're taking is an appropriate one. Is it one where the fruits of that job provide two things? One, benefit to the self or the character, and two, benefit to the whole or the cosmopolis. Whether it's beneficial to the self probably has something to do with whether it helps us to live in accordance with our own nature. Does the job lean into what we've determined to be our role? To use the terminology of Julia Annas, author of Intelligent Virtue, does this job leverage your disposition, your habituated disposition? Because your habituated dispositions likely underpin your skills or education, which underpin your motivations. And if you're choosing a job that leans into what you're inclined to care about, what you're knowledgeable in, and what you're motivated by, chances are you're going to be very happy in the position in the long term. This isn't exactly me saying knowing your why. I'm sure you've probably heard that before from people like Simon Sinek, but it is knowing yourself. 
As far as benefit to the cosmopolis, this is where it might get hard to keep yourself aligned because the truth is you might just need a job. And whether it serves the cosmopolis or not, you might feel like you don't have the luxury of caring that much. I would encourage to challenge yourself on that, but I'm not here to tell you how to live. That's not what you asked. You asked what the Stoics would tell us about the job search and interviewing processes. What benefit does the job bring to the cosmopolis? It's likely true that for a lot of jobs, the answer would be not a lot, not even a little. But do you turn down a job because of that? Again, I'm not telling you how to live. I'm just trying to answer the question. Think about the job. Think about how it fits into the context of the cosmopolis and see if what comes out of your thinking about these things seems helpful. If it doesn't, the ancient Stoics may have asked, then why do you want this job? And answering that question is your struggle to wrangle with, and I wish you well with it. As far as the interview itself, how to behave in it, the Stoic advice, I think, is simple. Know thyself and be honest. And before we wrap up today, I received a lot of positive feedback from my discussion with Leonidas Konstantikos about Stoicism and war. Well, he has written a just killer piece on a Stoic philosopher and a Spartan king, and it is on the website right now. And there's a link right at the top of the show notes so that you can go and read that article. It is just excellent. And if you enjoy it when you read it, please leave a comment because Leonidas will see those and he loves to get feedback. He loves to know what people think of things he's written. And I think if you enjoy the content or even if you hate it, if you hate it, especially probably, I think he might like that the most. If you have concerns with it or you want to challenge him, leave a comment. Again, link to that article by Leonidas down in the show notes. And I think that's all I've got for you today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Practical Stoicism. If you haven't already, I would really appreciate a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or Podchaser.com. If you've already left a review for this show, thank you. I really appreciate it. Those things mean a lot to me. Thanks for listening, and until next time, take care. Take care.